Let's pray. Jesus, our most holy King, we love you, and we're here to stand before you today to hear from you, to ask that you would speak to us, and to worship you. First, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for not truly giving our lives over to you, for constantly picking up our own idols, for trusting in ourselves and others before trusting in you. We ask you to forgive us for the sin that we allow in our hearts, in the way we speak to others, the injustices we deliver to our neighbors, and the unspoken expectations we have that end up hurting our loved ones. Jesus, we thank you for the continual provision of our church building and the finances to be here as a church. Thank you for this body of believers who go in here. Thank you for those who are willing to dive into community despite the flaws that we all have. Lord, your gifts in this life are truly miraculous. We can look around and see such beauty in the small, perfectly shaped flower in a friendship that offers love and truth. Often we don't stop to be thankful. Teach us how to be thankful in all situations and to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus, we ask you for continued help during this time. Please protect those people who have hurting marriages, those painful relationships, the anxiety, the stress, the sadness, and health issues. Lord, we feel sad after yesterday's membership resignations. Some of us don't feel closure on those relationships, and others of us feel angry, and some are just confused. May we recognize our feelings, Lord. We ask you for your help during this time. Please guide us into what reconciliation really means. Challenge us into deeper, transparent relationships with each other and help us not to be afraid to trust. We pray for the members who have resigned or left. Please guide them and reveal your truth in their lives. Help us all to get a glimpse of what it means to really follow Yahweh, and help us to see that it all starts with a deep personal relationship with Jesus. Lord, we lift up Aaron Leclerc. Please heal his back. Give him full movement and sensation, Lord. Help the Leclerc family to have confidence and peace in the situation knowing you are fully present with them. And may they use this time for your good. As Jesus, I pray we all can use this time for your good. You are our holy king, great and mighty, full of justice and mercy. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, well done. You may have a seat, and you can get out your Bibles. And we're going to be in Mark 12, 38 this morning. What a great way to get our hearts ready to hear the word of the Lord, both in song and in, the, in that prayer. Appearances can be deceiving sometimes, can't they? I can't tell you how many times I've come down off the stage to meet someone new and they start really quick because they realize how tall I am and they thought I was shorter up on stage. Have you ever had this happen? You go and you buy some beautiful produce at the store and you're excited to make this amazing meal and you go home and you cut into it and in the inside, it's rotten. You ever had that happen? It's the worst, right? I also love the funny memes that go around about what a product looks like online on, on uh, Amazon. And then when people purchase it and bring it home, it's <laughs> nothing that looks the same. You guys ever seen that? Sometimes it's clothing and it looks really funny. Appearances can be deceiving. But then sometimes, because we're all trying to save a few bucks, we all know the art of buying the knockoff, 
right? I know some of you in here have done that. I'm sure I have too. You know, the thing that looks the same as the expensive brand on the outside, but on the inside, it's not the same level of quality. It's not well-made. It may look like a Rolex, but when you look really close, it actually says Rolex, if you get my drift. Outside, it looks similar, but inside, it's cheap and shoddy, and it falls apart easily. And this is why, over and over in the Word, we're reminded to look at the heart, not to look at the exterior, as man sees, but to look at the heart as God sees. In our reading of Mark over the last few months, this has come up time and time again. A few months ago, I taught uh, on a a sermon entitled, It's Not About the Bread, It's About Your Heart. The idea of the heart comes up a ton because our heart is what plays out in the works of our hands and our lifestyle and the way we live. And in both the Old and New Testament, we see that the reason this is so important, this idea of the heart rather than than the exterior, is that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, We have this idea of the fact that God's people stand and worship and they they seem from the outside like they're God's people, but when it gets to the underlying heart beneath it, there's wheat and there's tares, both saying they're religious, both saying that they are God's true people. But one worship is costly and one worship is cheap and shoddy and will easily fall apart. And in our text this morning, Mark is going to contrast this idea of costly worship versus cheap worship, and he's going to use it doing two different people. On the one hand, he'll speak about the religious leaders and their worship that is actually motivated out of nothing more than self-interest and what one author calls self-intoxication. And on the other side, he's going to talk about the idea of this widow, the idea of the widow's might you may have heard before. One is for their own ends, consistently placing their own needs over others, even to the extent that they oppress people with their very worship. And the other one is costly, giving everything for worship of Yahweh. So this morning, as we look at these two different contrasting ideas, what we're going to see is a contrast between cheap and costly worship. That's what I've entitled the sermon today, a contrast between cheap and costly worship. Let's first look at Mark's warning about what I am calling this morning cheap worship. Let's take a look there at Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in Jesus' teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Youch. When we look at this, what he's giving us is a warning about cheap worship. You can write that that down if you're taking notes this morning. A warning about cheap worship. Here, Jesus is in the temple after his various run-ins and conflict with religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And remember that the temple was instituted as a touch point between heaven and earth. It's where heaven and earth overlapped. At both the dedication of the tabernacle and then again with the the temple, Solomon's temple, you see God's glory filling the temple in the symbol of smoke and so much so that it pushes the people out. And God in that moment is making an imprint on his temple, on the touch point between heaven and earth saying, this is where my glory dwells. And this was God's place where his tangible glory would motivate the people to act in a way where they would actually act in righteousness and justice, declaring his personality, his character to the world that so badly needed to see it. It was here that reconciliation and reparation was to occur when sin or transgression happened among the people. 
It was here at the temple or the tabernacle that priests were to act as mediators to assist when civil disputes occurred among God's people, and the law was to be interpreted to bring restoration. The temple was to be a place out of all places on the face of the earth where shalom would rule, in which God's kingdom rule of righteousness and justice was the motivation behind the activity of men. But from the very get-go, we see the perversion of religious leaders in Israel in which their worship of God was motivated by what they could gain, not how they could serve. It was cheap worship. A great example of this is the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel. Would you turn there in your Bible with me? 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2. Give me an amen if you're there. Anybody else? All right, cool. First Samuel chapter 2. And take a look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, Eli was the priest, were worthless men. In other words, they were cheap. They did not know Yahweh, the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. I love the description there, right? he got to name every vessel. He would thrust it in, and then he would say, or all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was to be burned on the altar, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay? Now, just to put this in contemporary terms, it would be like if you came up to me and said, um, you know, Hans, I, I have this sin in my life, and I, I'd love to pray with you. Could you pray for me in a, in a sense of repentance and, and to get forgiveness of the Lord? And I said to you, well, what are you going to tithe today? Well, no, could you just pray with me really quick, and then I'll, I'll tithe later. No, no, you need to tithe now, or else I won't serve you. That's how horrible this was. Can you even imagine a pastor or a church doing that? It's horrific, okay? And then go to verse 22. It gets worse. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, because there's children in the room, we're going to leave it right there, but hopefully most of you adults understand what this means. If not, I can tell you later outside, okay? But this was not good, This was evil. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They used their position for selfishness and manipulation of people for their own gain. This was an ongoing problem that was condemned throughout the prophets. Leaders of the people were intended to be personifications of God's heart as a shepherd to the people. But instead, they became devourers of the very people they were to care for. And what they were known for was allowing sin to sit in their midst and whitewash it because to point out sin, people probably wouldn't like that and they would lose what they were gaining. So they would leave it and they'd whitewash sin so that they could gain what they wanted. Look with me, for example, at Ezekiel 13 so you can see what I'm talking about. Go to the prophets and take a look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 13.8. 
just a little bit to your right from uh, 1 Samuel there, Ezekiel 13, 8. And we're going to read through verse 16. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying divinations, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. This is a section of text uh, combined with other places where it, um, it talks about the leaders. And right now he's focusing in on the prophets. He says, My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. Notice that there was a roll that was kept, right? There was a list of who was there in Israel. You're not going to be on the roll. I'm going to remove you from it, okay? And then he says, um, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus will I spend uh, my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is no more nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. Wow. Whitewashed tombs was a phrase that you might remember Jesus directed at the Pharisees of his day. And he pulled from this understanding. Dead on the inside, hearts that were against God's will, but on the outside, painted with pure white finish. Their worship and piety was so shallow, it only went as deep as a layer of paint. This was the ongoing problem that Jesus was addressing in our text from Mark chapter 12. This is what he was saying about these leaders. Go back there with me to Mark 12. Jesus was cautioning against the fact that what they proclaimed with their supposed worship was actually fake. They had a fancy outside. They could quote scripture. They could uh, sing really well. They looked like Christians, but what, or in this case, Israelites. But what was underneath was different. And the Greek word for what I'm describing is a word called hypocrites. Everybody say hypocrites. It's one that pretends like an actor that they are the mask that they wear when what is underneath is different. It's what our English derivative, the word hypocrite, means. There are two things that Jesus points to for this classification of these leaders as hypocrites. First, religious showmanship. They would wear their linen robes around and require people to greet them with their titles of position. Just so you guys know, this is why I always act funny if some of you call me pastor. Okay? It's not that I dislike it, right? It's not like I'm mad at you for doing it. Some of you have been raised in, in cultural contexts where that's very normal, but you can just call me Hans, right? If a first name basis was good enough for Jesus, I think I'm okay with Hans, right? So that's part of it, is they wanted to be the pasta, right? They wanted to be the title. They loved going to public places so people could lavish flattery on them. 
And when they went to synagogue, they loved being placed in positions of authority and honor. And lastly, Jesus notes that they would put on an act. That's what it means for a pretense here. They would put on an act where they would speak long prayers to garner attention. And the length of the prayers was not the issue, right? Don't, don't go away from this going, oh, my prayers have to be short. I don't want to be like these guys. It wasn't about the length or the breadth of their prayers. It was about the fact that they were making these prayers not in order to worship Yahweh, but in fact, they were making it to garner good attention from the people so that they could take gifts from them and gain from them. The very thing that the God they were praying to said, don't do that. I condemn that. Their worship was separated from the God that they served, and they acted as if they'd done nothing wrong. Secondly, though, this religious showmanship was contradicted because they didn't actually carry out righteousness and justice toward the oppressed. Here, this is captured by the phrase, they devour widows' houses. Now, no one that I have read can say 100% what this meant practically, that they were devouring widows' houses. But overall, what it's saying is that these leaders gained at the very expense of what they took away when others had little. They became wealthier and wealthier, not just from their hard work, but at the expense of others. It was motivated by self-interest. And so this is the same language of judgment that the prophets had used on Israel previously. For example, if you take a look at Isaiah 10 there up on the screen, it says this, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, And the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still." These men had religious exterior, but a prideful and selfish heart. And that is why Jesus condemned them in Matthew 15, 8 through 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. At the heart of their religion was an idolatry of self. One of the commentators that I read in studying this, as I mentioned earlier, used the phrase self-intoxication. I think that's a great phrase for us to understand, especially in today's culture. What phrase could better picture where we are today but self-intoxication? Hold on a second. I need to take a selfie. Oh, sorry. (laughs) The reality is, is our entire society has become so intoxicated with ourselves and our feeling of self-righteousness and the the need to build up themselves that they don't care who it harms. Self-advancement, self-promotion is all that we care about. God's law, God's heart, and God's mission had all been sacrificed on the altar of self. For this, Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Let that sit for a second. Worship that's motivated by self is not the worship that serves the God who gave everything for others. These scribes were engaging in all the religious actions and posturing, But when you get right down to it, this was a cheap worship that cost nothing. Their lives were still their own. And this should cause us to pause and ask the question of if this is describing your faith or mine, an empty faith, showy on the outside, but empty and cheap on the inside. Mark doesn't just leave it here. Praise God for that, because I think we'd all walk away pretty darn depressed. 
he actually gives us a contrast. And you know how hard it is when, when somebody says, stop doing that, you know, especially for kids, they start asking, okay, well, what do I do instead? And God is good at that. So he gives us what we should do instead. And this is where he takes us to the next thing. And he gives us, thankfully and graciously, an object lesson in costly self-sacrifice. Now, this is an interesting section of text because it not only gives us an example, but there's something else hidden in this text, which I'm going to get to in a second. But what Jesus is about to say, he actually says, many commentators believe, in anger. And so you can almost read this next section with a tone of anger, and I'll show you why in a moment. But first, if you'll recall, Mark opened the section that focused on discipleship in Mark 8, 34 through 35 with this. Calling the crowd to, the, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Okay? He defines costly sacrifice. And in Mark 12, Mark is closing Jesus' public ministry before the steps to the cross. And he finishes with Jesus pointing out an example of the model of costly sacrifice. And it stands in stark contrast to the hypocritical leaders that we have just looked at. So let's take a look there and read from Mark 12, 41 through 44. It says that he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, now again, imagine his tone here. And try and imagine it with a little bit of heaviness and pointedness. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Jesus sat down after teaching across from the area known as the treasury. You can see it here in this slide uh, with the red arrows pointing down to it. It's an area known as the court of women and most likely the area known as the chamber of wood. In that space were offering vessels somewhat like what we see on the right there, um, which could, it could have also been shaped in the, the form of a shofar, a ram's horn, a trumpet, um, but it was like, a, like this. And so she would have walked by and she would have just dropped her coins in and moved on her way, probably shuffling along in her old age there. And it would not have been a big production. And most people hardly would have even noticed. I mean, it's just a widow, right? I say that sarcastically. But Jesus notices her because God notices the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the brokenhearted. And notice with me that he acknowledged her not because of the amazing large amount of sums of money that she gave. For before her, many who were obviously more wealthy, they showed it outwardly with their outward appearance, gave large sums of money. But this widow came along with two small copper coins, which make up in our nomenclature the smallest denomination of money. And it's basically like a penny. The word here is the quadrants, and it was roughly one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So imagine what you make in a day of your work, uh, or let's just say even a person who makes minimum wage. That's probably a better lesson. And take one sixty-fourth of that, and that's what she was giving away. The reason this was such a big deal was twofold. First, the woman was a widow. And not only that, she was a poor widow. Some women who had lost their husbands had children who had inherited, sons who had inherited from the husband, 
the wealth, and so they'd be able to take care of their mother. But the fact that she was poor most likely meant that she was not only without money or inheritance, but also probably without children. Some, uh, some of the people who gave, gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. She had nothing. And widows were noted in the Old Testament, the triad of the vulnerable, the widows, the fatherless, and the sojourners. And this was a way of saying, an idiom, that most, the most vulnerable and the lowest in the caste society of the day, they were on God's, God's heart. They were who he paid attention to. And this woman was one of those vulnerable people, and she needed this to live. And yet she was giving it away. Secondly, though, it is clear that the author is emphasizing that she had two coins, and she put both in. How easy would it have been to say that because she had two, she could have kept one for herself? This woman knew the definition of costly sacrifice. Now, how stark of a contrast this is to even the rich young man of Mark 10. He was challenged to give away all he had to engage in costly sacrifice, and he went away disheartened and sorrowful because it was too much of his identity to give away what he had. It was too much of a costly sacrifice. His identity was his wealth, and he had decided that there was a cap or a limit on the level of cost that came along with following Jesus. Now, if your mind is focused in on the material wealth here or money, or you think I'm making a a play for your money, pause here with me because that is actually the opposite. The focus here is costly worship. It is absolutely not money, and I'll show you why. This widow had not put a cap on costly worship. She was willing to give everything she had. These other people gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. What an amazingly beautiful picture and foreshadow of the work of Christ on the cross and the gospel. You see, it was costly for God to go about the human experiment. He created the world and gave it away to us everything he had created. And we, because of our pride and self-intoxication, destroyed it, marred it, perverted it, and handed it over to the very enemy of the God that we say we serve, the very God that created it. And so to redeem that creation, including to redeem you and I, God had to send his son. The father sent his one and only son, the very incarnation of himself, to be killed at the hands of humanity. The cross of Calvary, you see, is a symbol of the fact that God the Father gave all so that you and I might be reconciled to him. The Son gave all in that he gave his very life so that he might provide mediation for each of us to bring us back to the Father. And in that moment on the cross, the Holy Spirit of God joined in the work of salvation, being handed a fatal blow as the unity that once held the triune God together was ripped apart as Jesus The word says, became your sin and mine. And for the first time in all eternity past, the unity of the Trinity was broken. God gave all so that you and I might be justified in his sight. Jesus died that you and I might live. Jesus was separated from the Father so that you and I might be brought back into unity with the Father so that reconciliation may occur. 
Jesus gave all so that you and I might gain resurrection to eternal life. You see, dear brothers and sisters, the work of the cross was the most costly sacrifice that could ever be given. And only those that recognize this cost and enter into costly worship of Christ truly can be his disciples. That was the whole point of the comment earlier. If anyone would come after Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake and the gospels will save it. Dear church, costly grace deserves costly worship. Costly grace deserves costly worship. I can't leave this idea without immediately thinking of the wonderful author Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. I want to read you a long quotation from that book, but I think it so beautifully captures what I'm saying that I wouldn't want to even summarize it in my own words. I want him to say it. And so if you would just maybe look off into a point in space or close your eyes and just focus in and listen to my words here, I'm going to read this uh, longer quote to you and just hear the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life for the gospel, who was imprisoned for the gospel, who fought the Nazis in the name of the gospel. Here's what he says. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking any questions or fixing any limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are also infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for your life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God.
Dear brothers and sisters of Mission Fellowship, costly grace deserves costly worship. Now let's pause and talk for a moment on the seemingly most obvious application of this text, shall we? We might read this small section in isolation and think God is saying, give everything financially to advance the kingdom. Sow your seed, right? That's, that's what he's saying here, right? No, it's not. And in this supposed spirit, many have prayed on the less fortunate. A quick search online can find and re- will reveal far too many stories of televangelists with a penchant for expensive jets that preyed on the last of many a poor widow's bank account. And not just televangelists, churches and pastors like me and like us We too have been guilty of this sin. But isn't it interesting that Mark places this story directly following a condemnation of the religious leaders devouring the treasure of widows? Devouring widows' houses. To take it all in, Jesus is standing in the temple, the place that was supposed to be the touch point of God's character and grace on earth, the place at which the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner were to be cared for, not asked to give. And he is watching the corruption of the temple system devour the last mites of a poverty-stricken, vulnerable widow. Jesus is angry. Jesus' statements about the widow are as much a condemnation of the system of the temple just as much as it's a commendation of her costly worship. And that's what we see in this last portion, a commendation and a condemnation. A commendation and a condemnation. Based on what we know from the laws that aim to implement righteousness and justice among the people of Israel, the temple was to provide for the widow, not take her last means of living. But it was the self-intoxication of the religious leaders who had long since forgotten the truth of who they were and who they worshipped that let them actually devour widows' houses without any feeling of conviction. And so this text is not primarily about financial giving. What Jesus commends her for is her embrace of the costliness of following Yahweh in spite of the system she was in. But it does not mean he is endorsing the fact that it was the unrighteous religion of the religious leaders that was actually requiring her giving. Dear church, if you, in the midst of this COVID situation, are hurting financially, we don't want to take your last mites. But those of you who are not hurting financially, it is our burden to bear when our brothers and sisters fall down and need help. And so we are called on to give so that we might care for those who are hurting. Praise God, our church largely is moving through this crisis in a way where many are still in jobs and doing well. And we rejoice in that. But we also need to be making sure that we're using it for the right reasons. Last week, we were blessed to be able to send over money to assist the church in Burkina Faso and Marcel uh, to repair um, uh, the motor of the pump that pulled up water from their well. And so we're able to send money over to them and help them in the midst of this, and we're able to give out benevolence over the last few months because of your generosity. And so this isn't about money. This is about costly worship versus cheap worship. And this is an amazing literary flow for Mark because from the standpoint of the condemnation, this text before us sets up the courtroom scene in which, in Mark 13, Jesus will be passing judgment on Israel for their continued false worship and idolatry and dismissal of the call to righteousness and justice. There, as we will see next week and spend the next few weeks observing, Jesus will pass down judgment where the consequence will be the destruction of the temple and the sacrificial system. 
He will obliterate their religion because their religion is false. And it will be replaced by the true temple of himself, the true people of God, made up of both Jew and Gentile, the nations and Israel, reconciled into one as the church. Jesus charged them with a cheap worship, one that cost them nothing, in which they gained everything. And this is not too dissimilar from the cheap grace often peddled today, that following Jesus requires nothing in return. No repentance, no covenant faithfulness, no manner of laying down your own life, time, talents, or treasure for the sake of anyone else. They will receive the greater condemnation, a charge that each of us should fear and strive to avoid. And to be clear, dear church, this is not how we gain salvation. It's because by the grace of Jesus Christ, through faith, we have already gained it because of the costly action of Jesus. It's how we respond. But then this condemnation is paired alongside the commendation of the woman for engaging in costly worship. For some of us that have abundance in this church and in America, that's more of us than it's not even now. That may actually mean breaking the bondage of materialism and greed on our part and giving costly in our financial worship. It may mean that. But I think there are many other ways to engage in costly worship. For some of us, it is costly to follow Jesus because that may make us lose social standing. Some of you that are early in adulthood are listening to this, and you're at that place in life where you either choose to actually follow Jesus or you keep doing what everybody else is doing. It's no big deal if I party a little bit. It's no big deal. Are you going to follow Jesus and perhaps sacrifice that place and position or not? It would be costly for you to call out your peers for their behavior that does not glorify Christ. And that may be too costly for you. That may be the limit. I would hope it's not. For some of us that are further into middle age, it may be costly to not fully engage in the American dream. We feel pressure to do all the things and keep up with the Joneses and make our social media accounts look pristine, get all the toys and have the lifestyle. It's costly to break away from that. For some, whether it be in your marriage or your friendships or relationships in this church, perhaps the costly worship of Christ will take laying down whatever it is you're fighting about and agree to disagree for the sake of peace and reconciliation between brothers and sisters. Being vulnerable when you're feeling hurt or isolated is costly. Amen? Think about when you've been hurt. It's costly to be vulnerable and to engage in yet another conversation, is it not? Laying down our own opinions to hear the opinions of others in a highly, violently charged environment like our society today, that's costly, isn't it? It's costly to stick up for the righteousness and justice of Christ. Yesterday, we as a church had the most difficult congregational meeting we've had as a church because we had to discuss behavior that negatively affected the church body. It was a hard meeting. I don't know that I've cried tears as long or as hard as I cried yesterday. Church discipline, covenant commitment, and doing whatever it takes to work through hurt to bring reconciliation is costly, is it not, church? It is a costly thing to give yourself over into the hands of other believers and submit to their authority and trust that the Holy Spirit will work through the fullness of the body 
to bring about your sanctification. Being a church that bears the responsibility for one another is costly. Often we can tell what costly worship looks like because in those moments, in those actions of costly worship, we have no assurance that engaging in it will result in our good. The widow had no no promise that she was still going to be provided for. In fact, engaging in costly worship may go really badly, like it has for many saints over the years, and even cause us to suffer loss, perhaps even our own lives. But it's not about what we gain in this life. It is about the worship that Christ receives. Because truly, in worshiping Christ, no matter what we lose, we have already gained everything. For the widow, logic would have dictated that she would hold on to her money, or at least half of it. But her ultimate trust in Yahweh outweighed her fear of engaging in costly worship. When we confront our trust in self-reliance, we will usually find that place of costly worship. It's the place where we don't know how it's going to turn out, and we have to rely upon God. When we don't engage in that costly worship, we, like the rich young ruler, have cheapened the cross and decided that there is a limit to our response to his unlimited grace. Dear brothers and sisters, we must examine our hearts to see if there is any measure of the religious leaders in ourselves that wants all the benefits, but none of the cost. And instead, commit to embracing costly sacrifice. The heart of a disciple is constantly at work to reset itself away from self-intoxication and towards self-sacrifice. In this time where it is so easy to become self-focused, trust me, I know, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Let's ask God to reveal to us the ways in which we can engage in costly worship that brings him glory and causes us to grow more into his image. Amen?